welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name's Peter Billings and I'm an Associate Professor in the School of Law at the University of Queensland. So how did you actually come to study law as a student, as a university student? We're going back about 25 years now and uh, in the final year at school I was torn between American studies because I was drawn to the idea of a year abroad in America, history or law as a degree and uh, I was getting some encouragement to study history from my teachers but ultimately decided that law was the, the path that I wanted to take and so Having taken a gap year after school, I went off to university as a 19-year-old in the south of England to the University of Southampton, which had a, a good law school. And um, that's where I did my three-year law degree. And thereafter, I stayed on for another four years to do my PhD, during which time I also tutored in several undergraduate law subjects. So what was it in high school particularly that made you choose law? It's a good question because there's no lawyers in the family, but probably I like a good argument. So I like the argumentative side of what I do now in academia. And um, before my career took me into academia, I, I like the idea of uh, litigation, um, getting up in court and arguing your points before a judge. But um, as it transpired, I didn't enter into legal practice, but rather took my um, liking for uh, a good argument into academia. And as you were talking just before about the fact that you didn't go and practice, mm. what was it about studying at university that actually made you want to go into research? So how did I come by an academic career? Well, two reasons. One, internships in, in particular law firms in London turned me off the idea. And secondly, encouragement from my mentors at law school, Southampton University. So without their support and encouragement, I probably wouldn't be here now. But they uh, happily saw enough in my research as an undergraduate to suggest that uh, a research degree would suit me. And happily, that's how things panned out. And what was your PhD actually on? So broadly, my PhD was in the area of human rights law an aspect of public law, and specifically it looked at the legal treatment of asylum seekers in four Western states. So sort of within the Anglosphere, I was looking at how legal systems dealt with the applications for refugee protection that were lodged by non-citizens, asylum seekers. I can definitely see how that relates to your current research then, considering I've looked at some of it, and it definitely looks at refugees and immigration law. Mm. But before we get to that, I noticed that you're also interested in kind of other social welfare groups and the and the law that you know applies to them. Mm. What are your kind of general research interests then, apart from refugee law? So, I mean, broadly, I'm a public lawyer, so I specialise in in what's called administrative law, which is all about the regulation of the relationship between individuals, be they citizens or non-citizens, and the state. So the state wields considerable power that can have a significant impact on on our rights and interests and life chances and well-being. And sometimes governments get decisions wrong 
And so I specialize in an area of law that looks at how individuals can challenge and remedy decisions taken by the state to prevent procedural and substantive injustices. Um, and then I apply administrative law to different, I suppose, vulnerable groups within society. That's my particular interest. So my research, as you, as you appreciate, looks at the treatment of asylum seekers, but I've also looked at the treatment of Indigenous Australians as well. And going away from your current background, but what advice would you give to a university student who's starting out at the moment? Who's starting out? Well, if they're starting out, I probably wouldn't give advice to anyone other than a law student. But so within my comfort zone, I would encourage students starting out now not to uh, underestimate how much work they need to put in to realise their potential because all the students that we have at UQ at least are um, extremely bright and they just have to match that with application and to strike the right balance. You know, university is a time for enjoying all the extra co-curricular and extracurricular activities that are on offer. So, you know, work hard and play hard is probably my best. Okay. And just looking for a book recommendation that either impacted you or just you found really interesting. So if I go back and think about what I read as a postgraduate, one of the first articles that made a big impression on me as I was sort of mastering refugee law was an, uh, an American academic who I actually met, who was working at Oxford University. His name's Andrew Shacknow. And Andrew wrote a piece in a journal called Ethics, and it was entitled, Who is a Refugee? And it's a very thought-provoking piece, and it looks at the law's construction of a refugee and how that fits or how it doesn't fit with sort of the lived experiences of people who are displaced from their from their homes from their countries of origin so you know i think that's a good a good place to start excellent well it's definitely very applicable to what's happening now in the world so thank you so moving on to your kind of current research i noticed yeah you do have a lot in refugee and immigration law so you wrote something on the operation sovereign borders mm. Could you just give me a kind of general overview at least of it? Sure. So a, a lot of what I've written in the recent past has been reactive and critical in relation to the policies employed here that are directed at what's sometimes called irregular arrivals or maritime, unlawful maritime arrivals. There are various designations that are used, but simply put, they're asylum seekers who maybe coming directly from a country where they fear persecution, such as Sri Lanka, or they might be coming indirectly by certain transit countries like Indonesia or Malaysia. And the reason that they do that is because some of those places they pass through in transit don't offer refugee protection, so they head for Australia. And so what I've been doing is looking at the legal regulation of asylum seekers who come by these so-called irregular pathways, meaning without a passport and a visa, are often dependent on people smugglers to facilitate their travel, which, which can be hazardous. And so the work on Operation Sovereign Borders particularly was looking at what we call interdiction at sea, the detention of asylum seekers at sea, so it deals with deprivation of liberty over extended periods of time, and the policy of what are called turnbacks or takebacks. So the authorities have not only intercepted vessels bearing asylum seekers at sea, but they've actively repelled them and sent them back either to a transit country like Indonesia, 
or indeed they have returned asylum seekers directly to the authorities in those countries from which they fled, which is really problematic. So countries like Sri Lanka or Vietnam. And that's what the work's been focusing on. And how would you kind of apply that to Australia and the policies that it should be putting in? Well, the research says that if you're going to intercept vessels on sea, you've got to have robust legal procedures that are fair and transparent for determining whether or not these people have genuine protection claims. If you don't have those processes in place that are procedurally fair, transparent and robust, then you risk sending people back to countries where they have a genuine fear of persecution. So you compromise one of the fundamental human rights principles, which is the principle of non-reformal, which is simply a French phrase meaning you can't send people back, you can't repel people and compel people to return to a country where they fear persecution. So it's a fundamental human rights norm and applied to current Australian practices affected through Operation Sovereign Borders, there is a real risk that we are breaching that fundamental human right because of deficiencies in the way in which we screen people at sea. And there's also the risk of arbitrary deprivation of liberty, arbitrary detention through extended periods of detaining families at sea while we try and return to other countries. Okay, and moving on to the idea of indefinite detention, which I know you've written on as mm. well. Again, could you just give an overview of the research you've been doing on that? So the the, the difficulty, of course, with detaining non-citizens is that typically they've not committed any criminal offences. So they're not deprived of their liberty following due process of law and conviction for the commission of a criminal offence. So this is what we call civil detention or administrative detention. And it's not imposed strictly, it's not imposed as a form of punishment, though it is often experienced as punishment. And there are circumstances in which non-citizens in Australia can find that they have their liberty taken away for months, if not years, in circumstances where they may, for example, seek refugee protection in Australia. It may be found that they don't have a legal entitlement to refugee protection, but there are no countries to which they can be safely returned. So they can't come in, but they can't go back anywhere and they're left in a state of legal limbo and often that can mean they're simply left in detention as unlawful non-citizens and so we've had cases involving non-citizens who've been detained for five years or more they are rare cases but they are significant cases nonetheless and it is quite commonplace for people to be detained for over a year before their legal status is resolved in one way or another. And did your research come up with any kind of solutions to this issue? Well, yes. If we're going to be more faithful to our international legal obligations, then what we would have in place would be mechanisms by which people can challenge the legality of their detention, means by which they can argue that their detention is no longer a proportionate response, to put it simply. And at the moment, they don't have those kind of mechanisms open to them. 
So we need to reform our means of legal oversight for those in detention. So they've got better remedies at their disposal. We don't have that. And I noticed in your research that you talk about the issue of kind of security assessment, that one of the reasons that they are indefinitely mm. detained is that they have an adverse security mm. assessment. How would we overcome that considering most Australians would consider national security an issue that they don't want to compromise? Yes. Well, the difficulty with adverse security assessments is that they're made by ACO. Australian Security and Intelligence Organisation. And because of the sensitivity often around the material upon which ASIO relies or their sources, they cannot disclose the information to the person who is the subject of an adverse assessment. Now, ordinarily, principles of natural justice dictate that a person is put on notice of matters or material that's adverse to their interests so that they can respond and attempt to rebut that. But with adverse security assessments, the person nor their lawyer is ever informed of the particulars that inform that adverse security assessment. So they cannot effectively challenge those decisions. And a byproduct of being the recipient of an adverse security assessment is you don't get a visa to enter Australia. So you can be physically present, but not lawfully present. And again, you wind up in detention, and it can be for prolonged and indefinite periods. So to give you a concrete example, you could have a person, say, Tamil fleeing Sri Lanka after the end of the Civil War, claiming refugee protection in Australia. They may have a genuine fear of persecution, but ASIO might assess them as a security risk because they were involved in the Civil War with the Sinhalese. ASIO might say, therefore, they pose a terrorist threat. Difficulty is that they can't be sent back to Sri Lanka, but Australia is loath to admit them, so they get stuck again in this limbo status where they can't come in and they can't go back, nor do they know the basis on which the adverse assessment is made. So they're grappling in the dark. What can we do? Come up with something other than locking them up indefinitely so there are other means by which you could subject them to very stringent conditions on a visa with reporting requirements. They can be, they could be subject to control orders of some kind, place limits on where and when they can go places. Take it to an extreme. You could, you could even resort to tagging if you wanted to. But there are other measures that could ameliorate prolonged and indefinite detention. Um, so our responses are fairly blunt and they could be more nuanced. And moving on to the book chapter that you wrote as well, the immigration detention in Australia and the UK. So mm. you were looking at the differences between these two countries. What did you find? So again, this relates to what I was just saying. It's all about what we call preventive detention, where there are apprehended risks state apprehends that people are risky and might might pose a threat to national security or community safety. And it really looks at what safeguards are in place in both the UK and Australia to prevent preventive detention going on indefinitely, again in circumstances where people haven't been convicted of any criminal offences. And uh, long story short, in both countries... The legal restraints that exist 
don't have sufficient teeth in, in our opinion. So there is a risk of arbitrary detention. There is a risk of people's rights to freedom from arbitrary detention being breached in both jurisdictions. So we advocate in that paper, my co-author and I, a professor in the UK called Delal Stevens, we advocate for periodic robust reviews over the proportionality of a person's detention, which means if you accept detaining people on preventive grounds is pursuing a legitimate aim, community safety being a legitimate aim, are the measures that you're taking strictly necessary or are they disproportionate? Is it like taking a sledgehammer to crack a nut? Could you take other measures short of detaining people to safeguard community safety? And plainly, you can. And have you found any countries that have actually put in these sort of softer measures? Well, we're talking about alternatives to detention. So I suppose a better way of looking at it is that Australia's approach is amongst the most draconian of all states, Western states, if you like, where there's this presumption of detention for unlawful non-citizens. Other states take a more fine-grained or nuanced approach up front and assess the risks that a person poses. And even where they may feel that the determine that the person poses a national security risk, in other jurisdictions they've come up with schemes that enable at least the person's lawyer to know more about the case that they have to meet. So they may have schemes where there are lawyers who've been vetted by the government and cleared to deal with sensitive cases where the national security interests are at stake and sensitive information is um, at issue. We haven't come up with anything like that yet in Australia. So certainly there's, there's alternative schemes abroad that one could look to that would perhaps better manage and balance the competing interests of community safety on the one hand and individual interests of human rights on the other. And now switching from immigration back to detention in Australia, you were talking before about how you looked at Indigenous Australians. Mm. Have you looked at the detention of Indigenous Australians in Australia, particularly mm. with the news? No, that's not something I've, our colleagues here in the law school are looking at the issue of you know incarceration rates and treatment of Indigenous Australians and young Indigenous Australians, of course. But that's not been the subject of any of my studies. My interest in the treatment of Indigenous Australians is really in relation to how social welfare laws have been used to try and promote their well-being, put it in very general terms. So if we go back 10 years, there was a very controversial intervention in the Northern Territory which sought to intervene in what were deemed to be failed communities and very stringent conditions were imposed on welfare recipients. And although those provisions were subsequently modified and or repealed a few years later in 2010 to make them more balanced, more human rights compliant, those sorts of initiatives have now been extended across different communities throughout Australia. So welfare conditionality is a prominent feature of contemporary social security laws. And there are, as I say, sort of pilots that are being conducted, pilot schemes that are being conducted, tested, appraised, evaluated in Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, where the government are looking at using welfare as a tool. So the threat of removal of welfare 
is used to try and leverage behavioural change amongst welfare recipients. So a few years ago, several of my research projects were looking at the legal regulation of those schemes of welfare conditionality. Okay, well, that's all I have for you. Thank you for sitting down with me. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming to talk to me. Thank you.